Well, good morning to you all. Kids, you guys are dismissed. You guys can go to class at this time. If you're a guest this morning, my name is Adam. I'm one of, the, one of the pastors here at Huntington Community Church, and we have been going through a series, the book of Revelation. It's the first time as a church we've ever gone through Revelation, and it's, it's been fun, um, fun journey so far. We're kind of in the middle of these seven letters to these seven churches. This morning, we are looking at the third of seven letters uh, to these seven churches, and I've mentioned before the number seven is all throughout the Bible. It's definitely in Revelation, and it's just a number that shows completion. I mentioned a few weeks ago that, that, uh, that this, this fall, the Good One Kids will be complete um, this October. Uh, we will have, Olivia's expecting number seven, and um, we're so excited for that. But, you know, honestly, if I can just let you behind the curtain of our family, the, the last couple years is... It's been challenging because um, we've not been on the same page. Uh, uh, it's the first time in our marriage where we, we want a lot of kids, um, and I thought six was a lot. Um, but uh, my wife, she was just, you know, I really want seven. I really want seven. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's what the Lord wants for us is, is for seven. And um, you can see who is closer to the Lord, uh, whose prayers work better. Um, but through that, it was, just, it was just this interesting process for us. Because, you know, um, unless the Lord ch- would change one of our hearts, one of us is going to have this, this desire that's not going to be met. You know, she wanted a child, and, um, and so for the past two years, like, just watching her just process that, not being upset with me, not being upset with the Lord, but just being patient and just pursuing Him and just being thankful for the family that we have, but... But she really wanted the seventh child. And, and so for the past two years, it's been more hurt on her end than, than my end. I'm thinking the Lord and I are on the same team here. Um, and, but then something interesting happened to me probably about two weeks before she um, told me that she was pregnant. The Lord began to soften my heart. And I, and I began to like, I don't know if it was like I saw some babies in here and just started thinking like, It'd be kind of fun to have another baby around the house, and um, and so I found my heart being softened, even in my like my my morning prayers, just praying because every day I just pray for wisdom for number seven. That's kind of was my prayer, and and so um, about two weeks before she told me she was pregnant, I found my my heart began to change. Uh, I didn't tell her that by any means, but it was between me and the Lord, and uh, and I felt like okay maybe, but you know again we hadn't discussed that. And then one night after community group, after some of you who are in our community group left, uh, that's when she told me, and, and I just said, I, I'm going to go to bed right now. I need to go to bed. I just need to process this. And um, it's one of those things where, like, having a baby is something you just can't compromise. And so for the last two years, it's, it's, it, you know, it's been n- never really tense, but just hard conversation of, she really wanting one, me not at that, at that moment. And, and, you know, compromises, you just can't compromise having a baby. Like, if we go out to eat, and she really, really wants to go to Olive Garden, and I really want to go to Cracker Barrel, we can compromise. You know, I, it, okay, we'll go to Olive Garden. It's still a win. You know what I mean? Like, I really like Olive Garden, too. So it's a win-win either way. You can't really do that with a baby. And, and um so for me, like, just seeing the Lord change my heart, like, realizing, like, this is not a compromise, that, that I really just, I'm excited 
um, get really excited thinking about uh, another, another child. So the more serious the situation, like a baby, as opposed to dinner, the more serious the situation, the less you can compromise. And that's what's going on in the church at Pergamum, this third letter here. The church at Pergamum, they, they made compromises in both doctrine and practice. And Jesus brings a sharp rebuke against them. So if you brought a Bible this morning, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we look at verses 12 through 17. A little bit of background. This, this city, Pergamum, it was in what we would call modern-day Turkey. Uh, Pergamum was a loyal city to Rome. So the Roman Empire it kind of fell under that rule, and they were very faithful, loyal to Rome. It was the official capital of the Roman province for all of Asia Minor. It was known to be by far the most distinguished city in Asia Minor. There was this um, great altar to Zeus there. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, it was located in Pergamum. It, it was steep um, in pagan religion. Uh, so like all the cults of Rome, it was present there in Pergamum. Um, very much like Pergamum and Rome were like tied together. Whatever Rome did, Pergamum would do. It was very faithful. Uh, and it's, but you got to think about having a church in such a pagan city with all this cult worship, the sexual morality, that church, it would have its challenges. Um, th this church, um, even though it faced these challenges, we'll see in this passage, it did, it held fast to Christ during intense persecution. So let's read the words of Revelation chapter 2 together starting in verse 12 says this, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, as we read your word, we are trusting your promise uh, to us in chapter one that those who read this word of this book out loud will be blessed. And so, Lord, we know that this morning we are already blessed just from hearing the word. Uh, Lord, we are um, um, desiring to be changed this morning. We desire that you would work in our hearts, change us, Lord. May we leave this place different than when we came in. Father, I pray that we would be like these people who, would have, who have an ear to hear. So let's hear from you this morning. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, verse 12 begins with Christ's introduction 
to this church. Look how he describes himself in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So this is the second time we've seen this phrase about a sharp two-edged sword in this series. In fact, we actually see it a third time in this passage in just a few verses. But back in chapter 1, verse 16, John had seen Jesus, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Later in chapter 19, when Jesus returns, we read that from his mouth come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So we know that this sharp two-edged sword is some type of judgment that comes from him. We see this also in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, this is on the screen, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the word of God does for us. So we know that the word of God is this Christ. He, he embodies, you know, the characteristic of, of his father in word. And so here we see that the word of God even can discern the thoughts and intention of your heart. So right now, Christ knows what you're thinking, your thoughts, your intents. And we see that there's this two-edged sword here in this passage. It's sharp. It's, it's able to pierce, divide, discern, and this is probably the most popular passage dealing with this two-edged sword. But we see that Christ is coming to judge mankind by his word. And the word of God we see is that it's a standard by which Christ will judge all of humanity. Um, ultimately, we, we see that someone is going to judge you. Is either going to be the world or it's going to be Christ. Our, our culture's theology teaches that Jesus would never judge anyone. That he's so loving, why would Jesus in his loving way, why would he ever judge anyone? Uh, we see here that Christ is the judge. And I would just challenge you, don't let the culture, we should never let the culture define who God is. We need to let the word of God define who God is. Uh, let him speak for himself and that we don't let the culture, the outside world, Tell us who God is. We go to the word of God itself to see who he is. And so just know that, that, that if you go against culture, you're going to be judged or what's you know, called now is you're, you're, you're going to be canceled. And as we've seen, um, I've mentioned this last couple of weeks with March Madness going on, uh, March Madness was again um, big um, news this week with a university like Oral Roberts. Many of us, we didn't even know, we never even heard of the school, Oral Roberts. Couldn't tell you where it is. I now know it's in Oklahoma. It's a Christian school that took, it's taken a lot of heat. They lost last night, but they made it pretty far in the tournament. Um, but the school goes against the LGBT um, of our culture. And, and so there were people writing in to the NCAA saying they need to be removed from the tournament because of their beliefs. They should never be in this. How, how dare the NCAA um, elevate a school like this and allow them to have this kind of platform. So if you don't go along with culture, you're going to be canceled. But if you go along with culture, 
you are still going to be judged. So either way, you're going to be judged. You cannot avoid being judged. Make no doubt about it. Either the sword of Christ or the sword of Rome will find you. And that's what this church is facing. They're facing pressure from Rome, being judged. And so Christ here, he identifies himself as the one who has this sharp two-edged sword. Next, we see in verse 13 that he commends them for their faithfulness. Even in this hostile situation, he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Jesus begins by telling the church in Pergamum that he knows where they dwell. In other words, he understands the pressures, the temptations that this church is facing. And then you see this strange phrase that, that where they dwell is where Satan's throne is. This is a strange phrase. What does it mean that this is where Satan lives? Did Satan go out and purchase the mid-century modern home there in Pergamum? Did, did, did he just see on Zillow that 666 Lucifer Lane came up for sale and he just couldn't pass, pass it up? Was he throwing parties to try to tempt the neighborhood Christians to sin? What does it mean that Satan dwelled in Pergamum. What well, seems like Satan didn't physically dwell in the city, but the city was so steep in pagan worship, full of pagan temples, that, that the spiritual climate in that city was as if Satan actually lived in Pergamum. That's how wicked the city was. Maybe, you, maybe it's like some of you may say like Vegas, something like that in our culture. So they had... They had pressures all around them. This church was planted in a bad neighborhood, and Jesus commends them for holding fast. Uh, I think that's a great place for church to be. Sometimes I hear people talk about, um, you know, planting a church, and they don't want to be in certain neighborhoods. I, I remember this past summer when we were looking for a space to meet in. There was a point where we were almost like we were talking to Spring Hill Elementary about meeting in Spring Hill Elementary. I know some good people, Christians, that said, ah, but that's a, it's kind of a rough neighborhood, isn't it? Is that really where you want a church to be? I'm like, isn't that exactly where we want to be, right? Uh, and, and so here Christ, he commends them for, for being steadfast in a, in a tough environment. Um, and then we see where Christ mentions one Christian by name. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So th this was not just like some bullying going on, some people making fun of you for being, you know, Christian. This was serious persecution. This man died for his faith. Now, we don't know anything else about him other than this verse. So it doesn't tell us much, but it seems like these people knew who Antipas was. That's why it was brought up. Some speculate he could have been their pastor at some point. We just don't know. Um, but notice how Jesus describes Antipas. He says, my faithful witness. What a beautiful phrase. In the context of this book, it's even more beautiful because in chapter 1, when Jesus is being described in verse 5, he is called my faithful witness of his father. 
And so here Christ was God's faithful witness unto death, and now Antipas was Jesus' faithful witness unto death. Jesus honored his father by laying down his life, and now Antipas honored Christ by laying down his life. Jesus knew the difficulty this church faced, and he praised them for their faithfulness. How would Jesus describe your faith this morning? You know, I just, this week, just been meditating on that. You know, Antipas was my faithful witness. What would Christ say about you this morning? In the midst of extreme persecution, even until the point of death, Antipas remained a faithful witness. Though the church at Pergamum was commended for holding fast to Christ, they were also headed down a dangerous road. Look at verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus begins to confront this church by saying he has a few things against them. The first offense is that you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. So Balaam and Balak, these are Old Testament references. And then he explains in verse 14 what this sin is. What, what is this offense? What's so bad about this reference of Balaam and Balak? He says in verse 14 that Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Then we see the second offense found in verse 15. So also you have some who held uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. If you remember from a few weeks ago in the first letter to the church at Ephesus, we were introduced to these Nicolaitans. And I mentioned that there's just, out of the entire Bible, Nicolaitans are only found here in this chapter. That's it, these two mentioned. And we don't really know who they are. But it seems like from this context that these are ones that are teaching, um, that their teaching would lead to sexual morality and idolatry just like Balaam's. And then notice with both offense here, whether it's Balaam and Balak or it's the teaching of the Nicolaitans, um, notice that with both offenses you see the phrase, you have some. I think that's so key for us this morning. It's not everyone at Pergamum. It's not all. You have some among you. And it seems like the most, so you have some who are holding to these things, the most, those that are left, seems like they don't really care what the some are doing. And Jesus is frustrated with this gross misunderstanding of the body of Christ. Christ is trying to get them to see that if one part is hurting, then the whole body is hurting. Uh, this is why, like, we take membership seriously. That's why, like, Wes and Ty stood up earlier, and, and there's this commitment that they're going to try to be healthy individuals so that we have a healthy body, and vice versa. We're going to be, we'll try to be a healthy member so that my sin doesn't impact Ty and Wes. Um, just think about the body itself. If part of your body gets infected, let's say, like, you get some infection on your foot. Maybe your toe is infected. Sometimes the only way to save your body is to remove that infected part. 
that's what Paul is trying to teach the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 5, look at this. These are the passages you, you don't hear the media or entertainment talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So it seems like this passage is referring to this church at Corinth. There's a guy in the church who is having some kind of affair with his stepmother, probably. Verse 2, it says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So this is Paul writing this church. He goes on in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So this is Paul, who has written most of the New Testament. He's saying to this church, to that individual, I've already judged him. This is wicked and gross. Shame on all of you for not caring about this. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What this seems like this means is means remove him from this fellowship so that hopefully he can be won back. He needs to be removed so that he can see that he's not actually a part of this congregation walking with the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is saying here, think about bread for a moment. Think of dough. My wife, she makes pepperoni rolls all the time. And one of the things you do when you make pepperonis, you make the bread, make the dough, then you've got to put a little bit of yeast in it. And you let that yeast set, and it's just a little bit you put in, but if you let it set there, it permeates throughout the whole dough. That's what Paul is saying here. Think about that. If you let this little bit of sin go on, it won't be long before it infects the whole body. So he's saying you've got to remove it. Remove that yeast from the lump so it doesn't impact the whole uh, dough. He keeps going, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm, I'm now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So what Paul is saying here, saying there's no way that it's impossible, basically, to, to remove yourself from all the wickedness around you. That's what monks tried to do, this monastic movement. They would just remove themselves. The problem with what the monks realized um, at some point was that Removing himself from the world, the only problem is you still take your sin with you. So you can't remove yourself from all of the sin around the world because you carry it yourself. What Paul is saying here is he's not saying that you can't 
be around people who, you know, you go to work with who sin or you're in your neighborhood or sports teams or whatever, campus life. He's saying that inside the church, inside the walls, we need to be seeking a pure and holy life. We can't put that on the world. The world's never agreed to live that way. But those inside who claim the name of Christ should be attempting to live that way. And we see in verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is where the church, is. We, we've, we've not done a good job with this. So many times in the church, we are so afraid of like losing money of our budget and how much somebody gives. If you come in the church and, man, they're a good giver, I know what they're doing. They shouldn't be doing those things, but they give so much money. We're just, we're just going to kind of just ignore it. But then we'll point our finger at everybody else, you know, the person you work with, live, you know, across the street from. We've done a poor job where we have judged the world when we should not be judging the world. And we've kind of just turned our eye to those inside the body that we need to be holding accountable. We see here it says, God judges those outside. That's not our role. But he has given the church to hold each other accountable. That's part of what this affirmation earlier that you saw between the membership, that we're holding each other accountable. And here you see Paul says, purge the evil from among you. So similar to the church at Corinth, God was bringing a charge against this church at Pergamum because some in this church have committed heinous sins and the others in the church seem to not care. If most in the church knew what was going on, then they were compromising the purity of the bride of Christ for the sake of unity. Hey, let's not, let's just, for the sake of unity, let's not deal with it. But what's happened is we're the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ, I know I want my bride to be pure. I know she would, Olivia would want her spouse to be pure. Why would Christ expect anything less from his bride? That there should be a purity among us. And this church seems to be flirting with evil. As a whole, they're not openly embracing immorality and idolatry. But they are not confronting it either. This is where this compromise comes in. And throughout church history, the church has struggled to understand this important lesson. The church's greatest danger to its health, it's rarely outside the walls. Huntington Community Church's greatest threat to our spiritual health is not persecution from outside. It's not. Our greatest threat is when we, have, when we allow the spiritual Trojan horse inside the walls. When we think we've received this wonderful gift, but then that gift slowly kills us. One of the greatest poisons to the church is compromise. And that's what the church at Corinth was guilty of. That's what the church at Pergamum was guilty of. The church in Pergamum was holding the hand of Christ in one hand and holding the hand of the world in the other. And James chapter 4 calls us out on this. Listen to this rebuke. You adulterous people. This is, a, this is relationship language. Adulterous. Christ calls us to be faithful to him. 
Like Antipas, my faithful witness. Here, James is speaking to a bunch of people who are unfaithful. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Holding Christ in one hand, holding the world in the other. Christ has shown his love for his bride by laying down his life for her. And yet this is how we, the bride, so often show our love to him. We hold the world in the other hand as if Christ can't see what we're doing. I mentioned last week how these seven letters have this chiastic structure where one and seven are similar, two and six are similar, and then three, four, and five are similar. This is fascinating. It seems here that these middle three letters, three, four, and five, there's this progression. The first one, the one we're at today, Pergamum, addresses a church that's dealing with this false teaching. They're not explicitly being rebuked um, for false teaching and sexual morality. They're, they're kind of like, there's this compromise. Uh, this church is comfortable with compromising theology, morality. But then the second one, which we'll get to next week, um, the letter to Thyatira rebukes the church for tolerating Jezebel. So it's, it's a, little bit, a little bit stronger. That this church, it, it, it teaches or encourages the church to commit sexual immorality and to eat food offered to idols. Then the third letter, that, that um, fifth letter to Sardis, addresses a church that is dead. I think this is a great lesson for us when we look at these three together. Great lesson to learn how a church dies. I truly believe the first step to become a dead church is compromise. That's step one. We just compromise. It's not a big deal. Compromise doctrine. We compromise practice. And then it leads to death. And as you see these three churches, churches three, four, and five, they're they're at all different spectrums of, of health. I think the same thing is true for so many churches in America. There are churches today that will just, they'll die. They'll die this week. Every week there's churches that just shut the door. And you look back somewhere in their past and you'll see compromise. Compromise in doctrine, com compromise in morality, practice, and it ultimately will lead to death. Doctrine mattered little and behavior mattered even less to this church. With each day that would go by, the distinction between the church and the world became less and less noticeable. Worldliness, compromise, tolerance would be the slow fade that would ultimately lead to this church's death in Pergamum. Out of the seven letters in Revelation, I can't help but to think that this letter reminds me the most of the American church. That this is where we are. We just tolerate. We just compromise. A.W. Tozer, he, he said it this way. A new Ten Commandment has been adopted by the neo-Christians of our day. Thou shalt not disagree. And a new set of Beatitudes as well. Blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be held accountable. I think that's where we are as a church in our culture. 
There's something seriously wrong when we begin to compromise the truth to accommodate the culture and the world in which we live. The mission statement of so many American churches is, let's go along to get along. Let's just go along to get along. We don't want to upset anyone. We don't like conflict. One author says this about compromise. Compromise is one of Satan's favorite and most effective weapons. Then he gives four reasons why it's so effective. Number one, it never occurs quickly. So you hardly notice the change. It always, number two, it always lowers the original standards you once held important. Number three, it is seldom offensive because it is perceived as loving. Number four, it eventually leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. And you've probably heard this phrase, but it's been said that what one generation tolerates the next generation will accept. What that generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. So what's the cure for compromise? Jesus gives us a twofold remedy in verse 16. Look at this, verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I mean, this is the same Jesus speaking that we see in the Gospels that so many people say, ah, Jesus doesn't, he would never judge anyone. He's just loving. We have a terrible view of what love is. Let Scripture define what love is. Let Scripture define who God is. We see the first part of the remedy is to repent. We need to repent for putting the world above Christ. That's what compromise is. We're, we're, we're going to put the world to be our authority instead of Christ. We need to let Christ be our authority. I defined repentance a few weeks ago. Uh, to repent means to turn away from a sinful action or a sinful belief. Repentance and confession are not the same things. All repentance includes confession. But sadly, not every confession will lead to repentance. Jesus calls you to repent because he loves you and he wants to keep you from judgment. That's what love is. He, he, he doesn't want you to experience harm. And so he's giving you this warning, which is the second part of the remedy. We see here that there's this heed um, Christ warning here. In verse 16, it says, Jesus says that he will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So here again, Christ and this sword is mentioned that if the church doesn't repent, Jesus would come soon against them and war uh, against them. I think this is one of the saddest images in the entire Bible. To think that Christ is going to come and bring war against this group that believes that they're the bride of Christ, but really, they're not. They think they are. They think, here comes Christ. You were waiting on his return, and they're all excited. And then when he comes, like, what is he doing with that sword? And he comes and just brings war against this people that they thought he was coming to give them life with him forever, but that is not what he's 
coming to do. Jesus was going to war against this so-called church all because of compromise. But the letter ends with a very gracious promise. Christ gives us many chances to repent and start over. Same here. Verse 17, look at this gracious promise that he gives to this church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This letter closes like the last two letters have closed with with the call to those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus then gives three promises to the one who conquers. First, he offers, he offers hidden manna. So what in the world is this? Manna, if you remember from the Old Testament, manna was this food from God when they were in the wilderness that God gave them food so they could live every day. He was providing for them. And here we see that there's this food that he's... He's going to give this hidden manna. Think about the contrast in this passage. There's this, um, back in verse 14, there was this mention of they were eating food offered to idols. Then here Christ is saying, I'm going to offer you something better, this hidden manna. And we often, like, we think all the things that Christ wants to give us, like, it's, it's not for us, but Christ is... I want to give you this. This is better than anything the world will offer you. That that relationships, materials, all those things at some point will leave you empty. It's amazing. Just watch, for parents, watch your kids at Christmas time. They get so excited and wrap the gifts. This is the greatest day ever. Like a week later, okay, they're playing still maybe. Maybe a month goes by. That toy begins to collect some dust. It's not just with kids. It's the same thing with us. Get excited about a relationship. Then after a while, that relationship doesn't satisfy you like you thought it did or would. Same thing with that material. If I just had that thing, then my life would be better. It'd be easier. You get that thing. You work hard. Sacrifices to get it. And it just leaves you empty. It's because you were meant to be satisfied by this hidden manna, that Christ, Christ is the better manna that we can feast on and be satisfied. Only Christ can satisfy the longings of your soul. This is what Jesus means in John's gospel. For those of you who are in community groups that we're going through during the week, we're going through John's gospel. When John's gospel, when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, that's what he means, that that you eat and you're satisfied in him, in him alone. Second promise is a white stone. I'm just going to be completely upfront and honest. I have no idea what this white stone is. Uh, I've read many commentaries. I've read as many as 10 different explanations on what the white stone is. I'm guessing one of them could be right. They can't all be right because they're different. But it seems like this is just my opinion, what made the most sense was that these stones, these white stones in this culture were used as like tokens or like what we would say tickets. So if you were invited to a banquet, you'd have to give a white stone to get in. That's how they knew that you were invited. So here's this picture that you're given this white stone. So maybe this is a picture of 
the Christians, you know, maybe our right to enter into God's kingdom? I don't know. The last promise we see is a new name. The new name is this picture of being owned or maybe even branded by God. That, that we have all the security that his ownership would bring. Getting a new name is like getting a brand new start. That's exactly what being a Christian is. You, you're, you become this new creation. You get a brand new start. You get a redo. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you just need to start over. You, you, you've not been living a pure life that Christ expects from you. Well, today's the day just to repent, like this passage tells us. Repent. Maybe you've never repented. You've been trying to fill your life with these other things. Today's a great day to repent. You become a new Christian, a new start. All the things that you're trying to fill your life with, fill it with Christ. Christ will satisfy you. My prayer for us this morning is that we would be a church that is willing to make compromises for the betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ that we would be able to put the interests of others before our own. Those are the compromises that we make. But that we would never make compromises of doctrine, practice, morality, the gospel. The gospel is not something we compromise. God created everything and he said it was good. Mankind rebelled against God. We thought we had a better way to live. We're going to do it our way. So that created a separation between us and God. But God loved us so much, he continued to pursue us. He pursued us in such a way that it, it defines human history. That's why next week, you know, this week's Palm Sunday, next week's Easter, our calendar has been impacted by the love of God. That God loved us so much that he sent his only son to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross. So that you and I would not have to die that death. That we trust that his work on the cross was sufficient to take the place of our sin. So we, we trust in that gospel. We're not going to compromise that story. That Christ died and he was raised. Now he's reigning from heaven and he's coming back. He's returning to get his bride. And I want him to come back and find his bride living a pure life. So let us hold fast to him. May we repent over compromising doctrine and lifestyle where we're just trying to fit into the day's culture. So I want to invite the band to come back up. We're going to keep singing about this good news in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. May we be a church that never compromises it. And Lord, if we do compromise the gospel, then I pray that you would take this lampstand away. May we not make a mockery of your name. We want to shine bright for this city. And Lord, we cannot shine bright as a city if we look like the city. There's got to be a separation light among the dark world. So Lord, help us individually to live a life pleasing to you so that the body is not impacted. 
that a little bit of sin in one of us can ruin it for all of us. So Lord, may we live a life pure and pleasing for you. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.